first of all, I should say, are there any Steelers fans out there? Yeah, I mean, you should, you should be here this morning just simply out of gratitude for that gift last night. Any Bengals fans? Okay, I'm really sorry. I, I see you're here today, too, seeking consolation and comfort and for the, for the bereaved. Also, hey, when, is the, when does the Powerball, when does that get picked? Is it done? Was there a winner? Oh my, uh, it's just crazy. I, I was with um, some, some uh, friends yesterday, and uh, Matt's here, Matt Myers is here. Matt's a uh, stats math teacher at uh, one of the local high schools. And actually, we were together because we're uh, joined together by fantasy football, and of course, Matt, the stats guy, won again. And, um, but uh, Matt told me that the odds of winning the Powerball over and against what you have likely heard advertised, is one in 242 million. Matt said that would be like flipping a quarter 28 times and having it land tails every single time. So those would be your odds for winning the Powerball. So may I uh, just mildly discourage you from, from, uh, from venturing in that scheme. Well, this morning we're going to venture into a topic that... Uh, maybe unconventional, or maybe something that you've not heard or thought of before, and uh, maybe a little disconcerting to you. So let's take a few moments before we start and pray and uh, ask God to, uh, to lead us. Father, thank you in, Father in heaven, thank you that you are here in this room, the space in this room is not empty. But Father, you fill it with your presence. Thank you that you love us and desire to engage us. Thank you that you have the power because your spirit and you've given us a spirit, you have the power to speak to us and to impact us. And I thank you for your word, the scriptures that are not so much a legal book, but a book that reveals your heart, reveals your mind, helps us to determine the way that we can rightly relate to you. So may your word today bring life to us and understanding. Might our hearts be ready and open to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. August 9th, 1986 is a very special night for me. It is the night I got engaged. It is the night I finally worked up the courage to ask Louise Braswell to marry me. And she said yes. And then we drove around and drove and drove and talked and talked. We found a hotel restaurant open late to sit down and to celebrate. It's a great evening. And there are things that she shared with me that night that were profound. I would never share them publicly or in group settings or even with close friends and, yes, not even on Facebook. (laughs) Not because they were sexually intimate or inappropriate, 
but because they were so emotionally intimate and so meaningful to me. And it is a bond we share alone and helps to create the oneness that the Bible describes. Marriage and romantic love are good and they are wonderful. The emotion of love is so powerful. It's the most powerful emotion. And when we broach this subject, it's quite plain to see that without God in the equation, how easy it is for romantic love to become not merely a good thing, but an ultimate thing. The goal upon which all human happiness is pinned. You know, we're shot through, like it or not, we're shot through with a Disney-driven narrative. Western culture tempts us to search for complete spiritual and emotional fulfillment. How? Through finding the perfect mate. The movie Inside Out, how many of you saw that? Very popular movie. I know a lot of you did. The movie Inside Out included a short film called Lava. A quick story about two heroes who fall in love. Now this movie is endearing, no doubt. Yet it adds, perhaps unintentionally, to this cultural narrative. That being that romantic love has become the only place to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Here's a portion of this, of this, this movie.
Come on. Come on. Play the rest. Well, it's quite predictable, the ending. And you can watch it. Look it up. It's, it's all there. It's only five minutes long, so. But, um, but for sake of time, let me comment, or let me quote, very insightful blogger and author, Eva Tushnet, wrote about this song, Lava. And she said, notice he's surrounded by pairs of animals, two leaping dolphins, two flying seabirds. The years pass, he's still alone. Air and cold are eventually sinking into the sea. But alas, a lady volcano has heard his song. And volcano and volcano, this is the ending, are united in a cataclysm of underwater lava and snuggled together as one island forever and ever. She goes on, in some ways, this cute short film reflects the longings, the blind spots, and expectations and fears of a culture that we already have. We feel the shake, or this, this, the, the villain of lava is loneliness. This, the terrible fate our hero must escape. We feel the shakiness of our own communal bonds. And we worry we won't find anyone willing to hold us. As parents divorce, as friends move across the country, as extended family members drift into mere Facebook friend status, we fear that all people are islands. The only way to vanquish the loneliness in lava and the culture that created is how? Is through romantic love. Love between a lady volcano and a man volcano exists to rescue us from loneliness. There are no other forms of love depicted in this short film. No families, for example. The dolphins and seabirds have no calves or chicks. Romantic love not only exists to free us from the terror of loneliness, it also stops there and has no obvious fruit beyond the happiness of the lovers. She closes her quote by saying this, huge swaths of our culture, from our health insurance policies to our church ministries, are set up as if the one and only way that adults receive love, care, and kinship is through romantic love, and marriage is the institution which ratifies and fulfills that love. Now, Close quote. This is not a new phenomenon. The ancient world was not much different. Scholar Bruce Winter writes that marriage in the first century was everything, for it secured the much-prized ideal of domestic happiness. And we know from studying the Old Testament that in that ancient world, marriage, of course, was related to having children, And without children, without leaving heirs, there was no honor, honor, there was no legacy, there was no significance. So into this way of rationing out human value comes an upside-down proposal from the Apostle Paul. And it forms here the big idea of this passage, namely that marriage or romantic love is not life's ultimate goal. And therefore, therefore, singleness 
is a gift to be valued and embraced by the body of Christ. So turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And it's page 954 in the Pew Bible. Rich left off at verse 24. So we'll pick up at verse 25. But before diving in, I'm sorry, 955. 955. We're still confused about chapters. 955. Or actually, I am really bad here. 956. <laughs> 956. Before diving in, let me give you a little background. This is a baffling passage. And a little bit of background will help us understand these confusing verses. Here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. Number one, there's confusion because of their newfound freedom in the gospel. The Corinthians were confused. They had assumed that one's social condition or one's cultural condition or one's economic activity defined their life and ordered their priorities. And they found their significance through that cultural condition or social condition. And when they embraced the freedom of the gospel, apparently many were wrestling with their place in life. They assumed there were, that these barriers, because of these barriers, they could not be in the center of God's will or be blessed by God or be used of God. If, for example, I'm a slave or if, for example, my wife is not a believer, how can I really fulfill what God wants? Now, to this, three times in verses 17 and verses 20, in verses 24, Paul essentially says, stop it. Stop. Be content with where you are. Remain in the condition to which you were called. Now, a little side note that we should take note of. There is one exception to this, and that was to slaves. Where in verse 21, Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, go for it. That verses like that would have huge implications in the history of the Christian church. Second thing going on is mixed messages. Uh, um, the confusion that they had about status bled into marital status. Members of the Corinthian church and perhaps even leaders were sending mixed messages. On one hand, some adopted the ancient view that to be married was to be more spiritual, to have more value. And on the other hand, there were apparently some in the Corinthian church that comprised the anti-marriage party. They were against marriage, or minimally, they were against sex within marriage. And then the third thing going on is that, so then questions arose within the Corinthian church, likely from young people, is, particularly in this context this morning, should I get married? Should I marry? If I'm engaged to be married... What should I do? What does God want from me? Is it a sin to marry? The question's made even more relevant by the present crisis happening in Corinth. Paul will, uh, will allude to that. We know from uh, secular historians that in this same era, in the writing of 1 Corinthians, there were three distinct famines. And that led to tremendous food shortages, food shortages and riots and civil unrest. So, these young Christians are grappling with a uh, 
an affliction external to their, to their situation. And so a confused confusion about their freedom, mixed messages, and a question of should I marry all form the context here for the rest of chapter 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few verses and then I'll stop and try to clarify and then we'll finish with some overall thoughts and applications. So does that sound fair? All right. All right. Let's start with verse 20, uh, verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, or the engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, Paul cannot refer back to something specific that Jesus said. Okay? But he's been asked a question, and so he gives his judgment then about this matter as he depends on the Lord. It's possible there were others not as trustworthy who also sought to speak into this situation. But regardless, keep in mind that the early church treated these words as God breathed, as as Scripture. I think that in in view of the present distress, verse 26, it is good for a person to remain as he is. This present distress is the famine that, I believe, is the famine that was mentioned earlier. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah, yeah. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. This is confusing on several levels. First of all, Paul seems disgruntled about marriage. What's up, Paul? Yeah, you had a bad day? What, you just coming off a day long of marriage counseling? <laughs> this seems so distant from Ephesians 5 where Paul treats marriage with such loftiness and glory. Well, again, keep in mind the overall goal of what he is trying to accomplish in this context. He's trying to say marriage is not the only viable way to serve God and leave a legacy. You know, think about it. Paul is fighting against centuries of prejudice. Stanley Hauerwas, long-time respected theology professor from Duke University, argues that Christianity was the very first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Isn't that interesting? The Christian faith is the first one, first religion that really espoused the single life as a viable, God-honoring, God-blessed vision for how one could lead their life. And Paul just says, hey, if you marry, especially in the present crisis, be aware that it will add complexity to your life. You are responsible when you marry, and you are accountable for another person. You know, sometimes couples have trouble because they're married and they've entered into marriage, but they still want to think and act like a single person. And that's 
the cause of a lot of marital trouble and marital problems. When you enter into marriage, it is beautiful, but you, you must die to yourself in order to be, have a union, to become one with that other person. And that's part of the beauty of marriage. But if you'll excuse my English somewhat here, one, I, I got the impression of some old Jewish rabbi many, many years ago said this, a young man is like a colt that whinnies. He paces up and down. He grooms himself with care. This is because he's looking for a wife. But once married, he resembles an ass, loaded down with burdens. <laughs> I thought it was clever. Again, for a married person, the focus of a single is no longer possible. Paul simply wants you to have your eyes wide open going into what marriage is. Now, here's some other questions that are baffling. Does Jesus ex- expect, or I'm sorry, does Paul expect Jesus to come back imminently? If you see the verses there, he says um, the time has grown very short. There in verse 29, the appointed time. Does he expect the world to end in a short amount of time? Well, to answer this question, we are helped by the next few verses. And what we discover is that Paul is not talking about the duration of time, but rather he's talking about the character of time. Time is a premium. This is very consistent with what Mike shared last Sunday. Look at these next few verses beginning at the end of 29. From now on, let those who have, who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as those who were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now the clue here is in that last statement. The present form of this world is passing away. Now this was countercultural. The Romans in this world believed in the eternity of the world. And Paul's saying something much different here. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets had predicted that when the Messiah would come, the Messiah would end the old age and begin a new age. In the new age, the kingdom of God would break in and all things would be put right and death would be banished. Jesus claimed to be that very Messiah. Actually, quoting directly from the Old Testament prophets. And you remember what his opening message was as he began his public ministry. What did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus was ushering in the new age. Yet, still today, we find that we live in this, you and me, and Paul, this world, we live in the overlap of these two ages. We still dwell, as Tim Keller says, we still dwell in a world bearing marks of the old. Decay, disease, and death. This is the form of the world that is passing away. 
So, in conclusion, then, what is Paul saying? And I, I just couldn't improve on what I read in one commentary. The commentator said this. So what Paul is offering here is a radically new understanding of the world. He does not say the end may come tomorrow with his terrible afflictions, therefore do not get married. He's not saying that. But rather, the end has broken into the present and it requires that we reevaluate all that we do in this world. A world already on its last legs. That's the point. So our marriages look different. Why? Because this age is not our final destination. We do mourn. Of course we mourn. But our mourning is softened by our hope in the life to come. We have joy in things of this world. Of course we do. Things in this world bring joy. But that joy is... We don't cling to it obsessively because we recognize that earthly joys are tempered, aren't they? They're tempered by uncertainty. They're tempered by the reality that we might lose them someday. So this all plays into the kind of clear-ended thinking that Paul is presenting, a clear-ended or clear view of the end that would impact the way that we live today. Okay, so next, let's go into the next section. So Paul is asserting his concerns regarding marriage. And perhaps these have been heightened by the present crisis. Now Paul's not suggesting here that it's more spiritual, nor morally superior to be single. But again, remember, he is opening the door for two different viable pathways. Both lived under God's leadership and blessing. Now, before I read these verses, I do want to say, um, these are the particular verses that I had the most trouble with. In the days and the weeks before asking Louise to marry me, these verses haunted me. As a young man, uh, 25, 26, I so much wanted to do everything that God wanted. I wanted to please God. I wanted to take His Word seriously. I wanted to do the will of God with my life. And and so I I kept reading and rereading these passages, and they were just wrecking me. And I wanted to take a scissors out so bad and cut them out and pretend they weren't there. And fortunately, I had a mentor who was aware of my over-analytical mind, and as I kept circling around this passage like a plane looking for a place to land and sinking deeper into depression, my mentor had the wisdom to give me a good swift kick to move me forward, knowing without a shadow of a doubt that I did not possess this capacity and this gift to be single. And uh, he saw the larger picture. He gave me a good kick, and I went for it, and uh, it's gone very well since then. But here are the verses that were so haunting me. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, at least he should be. And his interests are divided. Just clear, cold logic. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, 
not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, running against centuries of prejudice, Paul is articulating the benefits of the single life. He's not saying marriage is bad. He's just articulating the positive aspects of what it means to be single. Think about Christ. Christ was single his entire life. Sam Albury writes about Jesus, saying he was the most fully human and complete person that ever lived. His singleness in no way diminished his humanity. He was not less of a person for it. No one is. Marriage for all of its blessings is not intrinsic to being whole and fully realized as a person. So this is what Paul is seeking to do. He's seeking to say that if you choose to live a single life, it will have some direct blessings and qualities, and particularly in your spiritual walk with Christ. Now, finally, in verse 36, or two more things here. Finally, Paul sort of swings back the other way, and he rebuts those, apparently here, in the anti-marriage party who suggested you were sinning if you went ahead. How could you get married? Look at what he says in verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and is determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now you might be wondering, why is Paul... Specific, or it seems to be primarily addressing the man in this case. And again, there is a cultural reality there that Paul is working with. That was the cues of that culture. Men took the initiative in the whole engagement and marriage process. But you do see he does go back and forth speaking to both man and to the woman in regards to this. Again, Paul wants you to enter marriage with eyes wide open. But I'll comment a little bit more on this particular passage when we look at the applications. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Here's his closing remarks on this. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting. And we have to set this against the broader pagan culture to understand this. As a result of this vision, the early church did not pressure people to marry. This was unique. According to one historian, Rodney Stark, he says pagan pagan widows faced great social pressure to remarry. The church, on the other hand, stood ready to support poor widows financially, allowing them a choice as whether or not to remarry. Now, in this final statement, Paul says two important things. Number one, marriage is a lifelong covenant. Man and woman alike. It is a lifelong covenant. And number two, he says when we marry, we should marry in the Lord. Meaning that spiritual 
Compatibility is critical. It is better not to marry. You can follow the double negatives here. It is better not to marry than to not marry the Lord. Let me repeat that. It is better not to marry than to not marry in the Lord. If the person, if your prospective uh, partner is not a Christian or if they will hinder your relationship with Christ, this is not the kind of a spiritual blueprint that produces a God-honoring, God-glorifying marriage and the kind of marriage that will also bring the intimacy and the kinship that you're searching for. For many years, many years, I have listened to the sad stories and regrets of spouses who abandoned this advice, advice, somehow believing that their love would be different, (laughs) that their love would somehow erase the spiritual differences. Okay, this is God's word to us. It's an amazing word, isn't it? It's a countercultural word today. Got that out. That was hard to say. And it was back then as well. So let me just give here then, I want to give five reflections and applications for how this passage ought to change us and ought to affect us today. Here's number one. Single and married, be content where you are. Single or married, be content right where you are. Matter of fact, I think it's the thrust of the entire chapter. Your present condition in no way leaves you unable to be used by God and experience the blessing of God in your life. Single people often want to be married and believe life will not begin until that happens. Many married people want to be single or at least live like a single. Our problem is lack of contentment. We don't value God's gift or timing in our discontent. If you are single, many and by the way, your, your conditions very well may change throughout your life. If you're single, many of you in this room will someday be married. And if you're married, at least half of you will one day be single again. So, treat each pathway as a sacred trust. Secondly, single is a gift and should be valued in the body of Christ. There's been so much hurt in churches in this realm. There's been a lot of hurt. I, I, my uh, oldest sister married a little bit later. She was 40 or 41 when she married. It was actually the first ceremony that I ever officiated. It was pretty cool. And um, her and Joe now have been married for, for many years. He's a good, good guy. And he was really worth the wait. Um, but the... Um, uh, Many times, more than once, I listened to the hurts and the aches of my sister, of relating to churches that did not understand, and in reality carried prejudices about singleness underneath. The subtle message to singles often is that they are unfinished. They are incomplete. One pastor was spot on when he said that in groups and private conversations, will often say to singles, aren't you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? Hey, guy, what you need is a good wife. Or, hey, I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good guy. Now, all of this is good and well when you are good friends 
and you know the desires of that individual, but too often we say these things flippantly. We throw them around nervously to people that we don't know that well, and frankly, they expose our hidden beliefs and our hidden prejudices. Stop that, church. (laughs) Stop that. It's not right. It's not right. Third, the other side of it, marriage is to be encouraged, not discouraged. Paul's not discouraging marriage. Marriage is to be encouraged. Paul is telling people to get married. And in this case, unlike Ephesians 5, he's being incredibly practical. You see, the cultural swing that we're currently living in this very day, we're living this cultural swing, is to delay marriage until we get all of our life in order. Get all of our ducks in a row. Now, there's something to be said about having a job, okay? That's, that's clear. But that is not what most churches and what most parents are thinking about when they encourage their children to delay marriage. I think delaying marriage, I think delaying marriage in order to create a Western standard of affluence would have been a foreign and strange idea to the Apostle Paul. And friends and Christian parents, keep in mind that delaying marriage may be putting a very difficult yoke on young people and we may be unwittingly contributing to their sexual sin. I think this is what Paul is saying. I think this is what Paul is saying. Get married. If, if you're having trouble being pure and other things are lined up, get married. Very practical. Number four. I told you I was going to upset you a little bit today, didn't I? <laughs> Number four. The church should mirror the family of God in heaven. Very important point. Let me spend a little bit of time on this. Does not Genesis say it is good for the man? It's not good for the man to be alone, Right? And so God told Adam in the garden, God told this to Adam as he was preparing him to receive his soulmate Eve. So what does that mean for singles? Does this mean marriage is God's ideal for everyone? Can I not be complete if I am a single adult? Well, we've answered that question today in the emphatic no. This is a really important point to realize. Oh, actually, let me, let, me just, let me skip on here. I'm, I'm going to come back to that point in a minute. When the church is operating to its fullest potential, when the church is being the church, the church creates a community where men and women, married and single, find friendships. And they find a community that creates oneness and deep companionship. This includes friendships that cut across gender. Tim Keller coined a phrase, cross-gender enrichment. Now, it's a fancy phrase, but we all know what it is. It is the the way that husbands and wives impact each other. I have lived with Louise for so long and know her so well that I can predict what she will say before she says it, or how she is thinking before she thinks it. And vice versa with me as well. 
And for a lot of you long-standing couples out there, as I've observed and thought about your marriages, I see the incredible good impact that wives have had on their husbands and husbands have had on their wives. That's what Keller means by cross-gender enrichment. And single person thinks, well, wait, what about me in that? Where can I experience that? Well, the reality is, is that Christian communities that go beyond the superficial and begin to share their lives enter into something very profound. When we enter into a community and begin to have God shape us and form us and mold us and we begin to minister and labor and be on mission together for His kingdom, it is incredibly bonding. Incredibly bonding. For eight years as a single person in this church, I experienced this. I had fulfilling friendships with men and I had very fulfilling friendships with women. And many of those friendships still exist to this day from the bond that was created as a single person. Now, these friendships with women are indeed, once I was married, they did become less intense. And marriage does and should limit to some extent your friendships with the opposite sex. In Christian community, however, singles can have a greater range of friendships amongst both sexes. In this way, the church, the church, brothers and sisters, the family of God, spiritual mothers and fathers, provide for the single person what Eve provided for Adam, the sense of completeness. You see, we have to sort of go back, in a sense, to where we started And we have to remember this, that in the age to come, my best understanding of the Scripture, in the age to come, marriage will not exist as it does today. Nor will we be divided by marriage, nor divided by bloodlines or ethnic lines in family, but there will be this amazing oneness, this amazing unity, this amazing uh, sense of completeness and f- as the family of God living as brothers and sisters with one another and with the Lord. And so what that means to some degree is that marriage in this life, a great thing, family in this life, a great thing, is a shadow or an image or it gives us a picture of what the ultimate marriage, the ultimate family will look like. The marriage to the Lamb. The feast with the people of God. The wedding feast with the people of God. And so in this realm, we get a picture of what marriage and family will look like in the age to come as we live as brothers and sisters. And so when we go back to where we started with our big idea, what is Paul saying? Namely, that marriage or romantic love is not life's ultimate goal, and therefore singleness is a gift to be valued and embraced by the body of Christ. And that leads us to the last application point, and that is this, that the gospel de-idolizes marriage. The gospel prizes the beauty of marriage. It says marriage is good, marriage is honorable, marriage is holy, but it doesn't say that It is the all and end all of life. The gospel 
takes marriage and uproots it from its idolatrous place that it takes in our hearts. How does Paul do this? By making singleness a legitimate option. I like the way one pastor said, he said, don't think that marriage alone or romantic love will fulfill all your needs for emotional and spiritual completeness. It won't because it can't. It won't because it can't. Marriage was never designed by God to be all and all. The thing I pin all my happiness on. Now that truth brings unbelievable freedom. This truth frees up couples, married couples, to stop idolizing and stop idealizing their marriage, treating their marriage with expectations like it's an ongoing, never-stopping Hollywood movie and laying expectations on their spouse that they can never meet. And it frees up singles to enjoy life now, feel completed now, and if they do desire to marry and date, it frees them to also abandon idealistic expectations in that search for the perfect soulmate. At least as our culture defines it. What it does for singles, this truth, this de-idolizing of marriage, is it, it helps them to focus first on themselves and becoming a true spiritual friend and living a life of self-sacrifice. And then something beautiful happens when you focus on that first. You know what? When you focus on being a true spiritual friend and you focus on self-sacrifice, then all of a sudden something changes in the way you see people. And you find that that's the exact thing that you value in somebody else. There might be a person in your world that you're completely closed off to right now because you're valuing the entirely wrong things. And so this giving up of the idolizing of marriage helps single people to see clearly. In the end, lastly, this chapter points to the incarnation of Christ. How so? How does it point to the incarnation of Christ? Well, very simply, Jesus was in the world, but he did not lay all of his hope in it. He lived a real human life, absorbing suffering, absorbing temptation like you and me, and yes, even family conflicts. Yet he never let the surrounding culture, he never let his family dictate to him his priorities or to shape his identity. He knew he belonged to the Father. Just as in verse 23, Paul said, you belong to Christ. Jesus' coming broke the power of the world. This form, this present form is passing away so that we can await His return, His return at the appointed time. And because of that, because of what Christ did, then we too are able to live faithfully before God, single or married. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This morning, and I, I don't know how these words run across 
the hearts of my friends here. Whether single or married, Father, I pray that they would bring clarity and hope and encouragement and strength and perspective unlike we've ever had before. We pray that, I pray, Father, for us as a body that we would value and embrace the single adults around us. And if we have had prejudices, if we have believed wrong things, that we would reject those beliefs. Father, Father, if we're married and we're acting like singles, bring us back into that covenant commitment. Father, if some, many here have been lost their marriages, went through the awful trauma of divorce, find themselves single again. Some, Lord, here have been married and then their spouse passed and died and find themselves single again. Father, I pray that you would bring, again, your very, very unique healing and very unique um, grace to their situation. Lord, for the single adults that have been perhaps gone through multiple rejections, multiple disappointments, Father, please, I pray that you would bring to them something I know I can't bring, a kind of love and acceptance and comfort and kindness that is just so unique to what you can do. I pray for them this morning as well. For the single adults, God, that have felt incomplete, have felt um, alone, Father, I pray that we could do a better job as a church and, and maybe there's steps they need to take in order to get into a deeper community where those needs of community can be met by other brothers and sisters. Father, these are needs way beyond what our pastors can take care of or our members can take care of. There are things that only you, God, can do. But at the same time, let us play our part. As we sing, as we give our offering, God, as we pray, let the Word of God by your Holy Spirit continue to minister to us, either bringing conviction if we've been apathetic or bringing comfort if we've been hurt and in need of healing. Through Christ we pray. Amen.